Good morning. We are going to continue, as I am sure you imagine, our series in Colossians. And it's been a it's been a neat study. It's almost like how can you go wrong when you come to a book that's so saturated with the centrality of Jesus Christ? You know, you can take one word like core, which is sort of a an abbreviation of central and you know, and we talk about it, and the end of it is it's Jesus Christ. It's all about him. We can sing songs like, you're our priority, you're our everything, and you're not, not, not that Jesus is our almost everything or our something or our a few things, but he is that all-inclusive term, everything. And while we're grappling to know what that means, we say it in faith with affirmation, and Paul certainly argues it in Colossians. And we're going to continue on with that, and we're in kind of the second section of Colossians, as you can see from the, the little sign there, Christ-centered ministry. <clears throat> and in, verse, or in chapter 1, in verse 27, Paul talks about him, God, or God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And that nuance of mystery is going to come up again in this text, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Paul's proclaiming the mystery of Christ. And then in verse 28, he says, we're doing it by proclaiming and warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And here's the key to this morning's sermon. That Paul's goal, motive, his purpose for warning is that we, Paul and his entourage, may present everyone mature. The goal is maturity in Christ. And for this, Paul toiled in verse 29, struggling with, in, with all Christ's energy and, and the triune God's energy and he, that he powerfully works within me. That Paul was striving, God's striving, and the goal of their striving, the purpose of their striving is maturity. And you know what? I think in our culture, maturity is not necessarily prized or considered wealthy or to consider or to be considered of much benefit. I remember as my kids were growing up, and I've watched some of your kids, and they do the same thing. You know, after they get past the stage of I'm this many old, then they finally can figure out what this many means, and they'll say things like, I'm seven and a half years old. And I always think, well, you're seven. But they want to say, no, 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 I'm not a little seven-year-old. I'm a seven and a half-year-older Meaning, you know, or I'm, I'm almost 16, almost 16. I'm pretty close to it. I'm almost 16. And there's that sense in that stage of life where you want to be just a little, you want to be with the big kids. You want to be just a little bit more. And then my three kids are in their 20s. And as I told the second service, looking at me, you would never have guessed that. You might have guessed they were in their 50s. I don't know. <laughs> They're in their 20s, and here's what I'm hearing now. My oldest daughter is saying, someday, real soon, I'm going to hit the big 3-0. Katie, I don't know how old you are, but you're sort of in my kid's age. And you're really young from my perspective, just so you know, because I'm looking at him saying, if 3-0 is all that much to be dreaded, then what am I? Where am I? That's what I want to say back to him. But, you know, we've got a society where you've got like about eight years where you're okay. <laughs> right? From like 23 to 29 and 9 tenths, you're okay. And then you hit the big 3-0 and it's all downhill from there. And, and if you don't believe that, just look at the people that are famous in our society. Look at the, you know, look at the models. Look at the people that we role model. They're these... This, and you know what? The Bible doesn't understand that at all. He doesn't. 
Or the Bible doesn't. Paul doesn't. He said we strive and our striving is for maturity. Now, age and maturity are not the same. Let me tell you that. But the striving ought to be, and here's the call to the Church of Jesus Christ, and it's a call to College Park this morning, and I've asked it in question form as I've entitled this sermon, and that is this, to be mature or not to be mature? (laughs) That's the question. And don't answer it too quick. Because our tendency is to say, oh, certainly we want to be mature, but here's what Paul's going to tell you. The maturity and with maturity and with the desire to become mature, it's going to take struggle. There's going to be, you're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to desire it. You're going to have to want it. And quite frankly, we live in a world and quite frankly, we live in a church where maturity is not all it's cracked up to be. As a matter of fact, we like a little bit of having Christ and him is a part of our whole overall agenda, but he doesn't inundate our agenda. And he isn't the fullness of our agenda. We don't want to get mature to the point of where Christ really is everything. And that actually means something rather than we just sing it in a song. So the question is, maturity or immaturity? And I've divided this into three I call them three truths concerning maturity, and we're going to try to go. I'm going to go quickly through the first. We're going to work a little bit harder at the second, and then I'm going to run out of time. So we'll go quickly through the third. So I'm already telling you that. So, you know, point number one is this. Maturity is worth fighting for. Or, and I'm working off the, the letter F, so you'll see how that fleshes out in the rest of the text. But there's a battle, there's a fight. Here's the way Paul says it in verse 1. He says, 4 of chapter 2 of Colossians. And four links back to chapter one. We're in chapter one, and I've already talked about this. Verse 28, Nate dealt with it last week very nicely. That Paul's goal and mission and purpose was in verse 28 to present everyone mature for this, mature in Christ, for this I struggle, I toil with Christ's energy. So there's a joint working there of my struggle and my toil, his energy. And then, and Paul didn't divide his book into chapters. He didn't say, okay, I'm done with chapter one. I'm going to take a nap and I'll come back and write chapter two. He wrote it just, you know, in a unit. And it would read better as a unit. For this I toil, verse 29, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know. So listen, because I want you to know this, how great a struggle he uses the exact same word. It's a, it's an athletic metaphor Agizani is the word that agonizai is the word that we use or that's in, that, that Nate talked about last week in Greek. It comes out with there's a struggle, there's effort. It's not an easy thing. How great a struggle. I want you to know that I've got a great struggle and I have it for you, church in Colossae. And I have it for the church in Laodicea, which would have been a church somewhere by there. And then for all who have not seen my face, which is that's kind of vintage Paul. It's sort of like, I'm struggling, I've got this agony of spirit to, to see maturity of all the people that have never seen me. As a matter of fact, I put in my Bible, College Park Church. Because I'm pretty sure, the last I checked, and did a survey at College Park, no one had ever seen the face of Paul. And Paul's writing, and I think we're to read it as though it's to be read through the annals of church history and through the life of the church that Paul struggled and put the book of Colossians together so we could be reading it. And one of his goals is this, that his struggle was so that we would struggle to become mature, to become mature. And it's a battle. It's not easy. Therefore, a lot of people slough off. A lot of people say it's not worth it. A lot of people say, I'm just not going to put the effort forth. And the question this morning becomes this. Do you desire to become mature in your faith or not? And think about it before you say yes. Because probably the more likely answer is kind of yes. But not fully yes. Because I'm not sure I'm willing to pay the price that it would take to really become mature. 
and my knowledge of Christ. You know, Jim prayed for the, the, the church in Nicaragua that we're connected with, and my wife and I have gone down there to La Concha, Nicaragua, which isn't even on the map. It's this little hill country or little hill city or town. It's not really even a city. And one of the things that's been neat, we've gone there for eight or nine years, and we go back every year, as God's allowed us to, is to see the growth of that little church. And it started out just as a little group of people. It's grown. It's expanded. They have a Christian school. There's about 260 kids that go to that school in primary and secondary. There are many of you that are supporting some of the kids that are in that school. And here's the reason I hope you are. Here's the goal that we have as a church, and that is that that little community would be growing in their maturity. And it's fun to see from year to year the the little evidences of maturity among the kids and in the community that's there. And, And as a community of faith at College Park, we've wanted to see maturity growing in the Ukraine and in Africa and in China and in a number in the unreached people groups. That's what the church is about, seeing maturity. Here's the question for the morning, and that is, are you really interested in maturity? Are you up for the fight? Or would you rather take the easy road, which really turns out to be the hard road, and that is the road that says it's not worth it. There's too many other things in life. Being mature is not what I'm about, because it is going to be a battle. And you know what? I think discipleship is something that, as a church, we need to proclaim more often, and that is there's a battle, there's a fight, there's work involved, but the work is so worth the results that, as a matter of fact, in one sense, there's no real choice. We have to be about maturity. Paul would argue for that. Well, point number two is this. And carrying on with the F motif, there's a fight involved in maturity, but there are a couple of features about maturity that Paul describes here. And these are what I'd like to massage into your soul. And they're in verses two and three. And I appreciate it again, Jim's comment that uh, that verse two is, I forget the word he used, but I liked it. I, I spent a lot of time wrestling with verse two, trying to figure out how does this all connect? And I think I came up with the connection. As a matter of fact, Todd and I were wrestling with it, a guy on staff trying to, trying to figure it out. It was fun to do that together and trying to say, Paul, what are you saying? You're saying there's a struggle and you're after it. And what are you after? There's two things, I think, that, that maturity looks like. And the first one is this. Maturity is done in community. And as I say that, if I were to have said, what do you think maturity looks like? I doubt that very many people would have said, well, it looks like community. I don't know that you would have said that. Look how Paul describes it in verse 2. He begins with the word that. He's just said, I've got, I want you to know about this struggle I have for you, Laodicea, for you, Colossae, for you, College Park Church 2,000 years later, and for the Church of Jesus Christ as a whole. And here it is. That, I'm not just struggling for nothing. I have, and the word that means purpose. There's a purpose to my struggle. It's a, it's a neat little word that helps you to understand there's a reason for I'm doing what I'm doing, Paul says, and it's in order that their hearts and I know when you look at that, you immediately think that the word there is a plural possessive pronoun, don't you? I mean, isn't that the first thing you think of? And it's probably not. It's one of the first things that I think of after I get over, especially when I look at it in the original because it takes me a while to translate it. It's plural. Now, plural is important because you look at the next word, and it's the word heart. And in English, the way we pluralize things is we put a little S at the end of it, which means more than one heart. And there means more than one person. And the point of what Paul is saying in this context is in order that I'm struggling, in order that their plural, hearts plural, <clears throat> may be encouraged. In order that the community may be encouraged. The word for encouraged <clears throat> 
is a word that I think some of you have probably heard before, so that's why I'm going to throw it out. It's the word that is, is called the parakletos in this context, or paraclete. I was tempted to ask how many people have ever heard that word, because if you hadn't heard of it, then I shouldn't be using it. But it's the word that Paul or that John uses in the Gospel of John. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He calls him the paraclete. <clears throat> and we usually translate it the comforter or the encourager, that I'm going to send you another one of them. <clears throat> and the word has sort of this literal meaning of called alongside of, which is probably the reason we translate it encouraged. It's kind of like the one who comes alongside. And when I think of the word encouraged, I think, you know, the guy that pats you on the back, the guy that says, hey, it'll be okay, no problem, don't worry about it, hang in there, just keep going. <clears throat> I like another translation better that I think fits within the semantic range of this word paraclete, and I think it fits the context better. It's the word strengthened. That your hearts, that their hearts may be not just patting on the back, that it may become strengthened. You know, I'm trying to pretend like I'm strengthened. It's like when you go to the, the gym long enough, like I've seen some guys that have, some of those other guys, and they've done enough work so you say they are strong, not just somebody sitting there saying, good job, pat you on the back, but that there's actually been this sense of development and maturity that's a heart that's strengthened, that's strong. <clears throat> and then the next word is a little participle. You've got to love participles. Whether you know you love them or not, you love them. You know, it's sort of like those things that are on your meat and you don't know what it is, but you know it tastes good. And I, I tell my wife, I don't really even want to know what it is, just as long as it tastes good. Well, that's what a participle is. And this participle is describing and encouraged. They're being knit together. That's how their hearts are strengthened, is by being knit together. And the word for knit together is a pretty easy word. It just has the width in the front of it, and then it has, actually it could be translated united together. They're united together. And knit is a pretty good word, knit together. It probably comes out of the King James translation, and most of the English translations since then have stuck with knit. I, there was a part of me that didn't tell, I, I was thinking this morning, I'm trying to think of an illustration to bring in, you know, because I have to have an illustration, and I thought I could bring my knitting, I don't even know what you call them, those things that seem like you ought to stab people with them. And that might not even be knitting, I don't know. But And I thought, that just doesn't have that sense of strength to me. Hearts being strengthened by knitting. You know, and there's a better translation, if I could suggest this, <clears throat> that I love, and I think it fits the context, and there's at least one translation I found that translated it that way, and it certainly fits the semantic range, and that is rather than saying being knit together, is to say, and this word you'll love, is being welded together. Being, I mean, that sounds like a guy. I mean, welded together, the strength of welding. You get this guy, he puts these big gloves on, his crazy hat on, he goes, and he takes two pieces of steel or metal of some kind, and wants to make them together. And he doesn't take out his little knitting thing and knit them together. He takes out his big welding rod, and I, I, I've done it like once or twice in my life and messed it up, so I leave it for some of you probably are into that welding thing. You take this rod, you go, and it melts these two pieces of metal so that the metal merges together with the filler, and it becomes an incredibly strong, so we use the word weld. And I love that. Paul's sense of them was that he desired and struggled that their hearts would be strengthened and it would be strengthened by being welded together. And then he uses a little prepositional phrase to seal it all up. And the stuff that welds you together is love. It's in love, in love. Which, by the way, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the word love is not a wimpy word. It isn't like knit. <laughs> it's like God loved 
the world, and I'm here to tell you that was a statement of strength like very few other statements on planet Earth, is the strength of the loving God who comes and intervenes in a sinful world and brings redemption in a way that shows power like power has never been shown on planet Earth. And so here's what a mature community looks like. It looks like a group whose their hearts are strengthened And it's as a result of or because they have been welded together with the strongest element that will weld you together, and that is love. That's love. (laughs) So then the question for College Park is, are we that? Are we a community of people that are welded together in love? (laughs) You know, this week... And actually, in the last couple of weeks, and actually in the last year or so in our church, we've had a number of deaths. And quite frankly, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of coming on a Sunday morning and finding out that someone else has died, and someone else has died. I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to the day when nobody dies. Second service... Sophie Carmichael's husband, Bill, was here. And I'm preaching, and he's in the second row, and I'm trying to keep kind of my emotions because I'm thinking, wow, his wife just passed away on, on Tuesday or Thursday or Friday, excuse me, just a couple days ago. And I was so encouraged that he was here in the assembly because there's a sense in which there's the love that welds the community together. When they go through the hardest stuff in life, you want to be together with the people you're welded with, right? And we want to be welded together in love. And our love is ultimately from Christ through us to one another. And so I was like, I'm encouraged and I'm happy and I'm sad. There, there are two couples in our church in the last month or month and a half who celebrated 50th wedding anniversaries. They've been married 50 years and their spouse died. The Warham family, Jack, went home to be with the Lord. And just Monday we had the celebration of the homegoing of Al Archambault, and they had celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary just a couple months ago. And i tell you one thing that I find about those older couples, because I'd been in both of their homes and I knew them <clears throat> fairly well, particularly the Archambault family, and the bond between husband and wife was just kind of mind-boggling. You know what? It doesn't make it on the front of anybody's glamour magazine, but i tell you what, it makes it into the Church of Jesus Christ where you say they understood what it meant to be welded together. I mean, there was a couple that were welded, and both of them had that. And so even death, which came in, and death is what snarls and comes and says, I'm the ultimate victor, and in Jesus Christ, we look in the face of death, not arrogantly, but we say, you're not the final victor. You can't break that weld. You can make a temporary time when it appears as though there's some breaking, but the day of reunion and uniting is going to come together, isn't it? We're not going to heaven alone. We're going to heaven as a community of welded people of people who have been welded together in the love of Christ and in love one for another. And I look at that, those couples and I say, wow, that ought to be a goal of being united together. We ought to have a church of people who are, whose hearts are strengthened because they're in community and they are in love with Jesus Christ and that love welds them together. You know, I've seen that here at College Park recently. I've been an elder for a long time here. <laughs> and I decided not to count how many years. Because it's one of those, you know, a lot. In the last couple of years, I have been amazed and encouraged and blown away at the unity that I've seen in that group of elders. And I come from that generation where guys, you know, maintain a little bit of distance. Um, I was joking in the second service, John Schmidler, 
and I are different. John's a hugger guy. And um, got a lot of laughs in the second service, and he said it was okay. And, you know, I'm working at being a hugger guy. I am working at it. It's just not natural. It's just kind of like... <laughs> All right? And if I do that, and you know what? If you really want to help me out, just go ahead and hug me. And you know what? If you don't hug me, that's okay, too. But what I've seen in the elders is this sense of being welded together around the cause of the church of Jesus Christ. It's been a lot of fun to watch. Hugging notwithstanding. Still been. And you know what I've also seen is within the community, because I've been a member of College Park for 20 years. Man, that's a long time. And there's been a sense of unity that just is very encouraging. And I say that to encourage you. But then I also want to say this. Here's what scares me. Is that we're going to think we've arrived. That we're going to think College Park is this really cool place to go, you know. And we love one another and we this and we that. And we're going to miss what I think Paul is saying to the church, and that is maturity is an ongoing process. It's a process, College Park, that isn't over. As a matter of fact, it's just starting. And the day you think you stand is a day you fall. And man, I tell you what, here's what we need to be working on, and you can't stop working on it. We need to be working on it diligently. And Paul said that I have this sense of struggle that your hearts are going to be encouraged and strengthened, be knit together or being welded together, and that's a continual process that we have to continually go after. I, I did try to come up with an illustration for this morning, and I thought I had the perfect illustration for this point. And I went out to the store last night. So you can see how far ahead I am on my sermon illustrations. And a couple weeks ago, you remember Pastor Mark did a thing on um, duct tape. The duct tape was the, you know, the greatest connector or whatever. And I decided he's not here today. I'm trumping him. <laughs> Something better than duct tape. And it's this. And, you know, it was amazing. I had this in my office and people immediately knew it was super glue. And I mean, probably you guys in the back. If you don't know it's super glue, you're not old enough, you're not mature enough, you need to work on that. I remember as a kid seeing the infomercial that I believed was really true about super glue. And they had this car in this kind of a sort of a cradle that the car was in. And they were going to pick the car up and they welded together. I don't know what. It seemed like it was two pieces of steel. And then they picked this car up. And I'm thinking, wow, that's super glue. Duct tape can't hold a match to that. <clears throat> So I got it, and I, and I got the original super glue. This is it, original. This is third service. I'll sell it to you afterward. And I'll give you a break on it, because I went home last night, and I thought, okay, I'm going to practice this so I don't get up there and look like an idiot. So I pulled out the super glue, and I got two pieces of wood, and I'm gluing them together. And some of you are smarter than me, so you know that, glue, that wood is too porous, and it just, I mean, it's just falling apart. I'm thinking, what's up with this? Picks up a car, can't even hold two pieces of wood together. Junk. <laughs> so we go all around our house because then I get Kathy involved and I'm a little hesitant to do that because the wife isn't supposed to know more about super glue than the husband that's absurd but I figured I'm desperate <laughs> tomorrow's a service let's find something we can glue together and so we get dishes we, I mean, we, we got all kind we glued half our house it felt like together <laughs> and nothing stayed together except for this and then this is supposed to be absurd because it really is. I found this plastic thing. It had paper clips in it. And I said, I'm just going to see if this will glue anything together. And you know what? It really worked. Look at that. 
super glue and it's of no value at all. It's like, oh well. But here's the punchline, maybe, is it says on this, and I remember this as a kid when my dad brought super glue home, the threat and the warning on all super glue containers is don't get it on your fingers. Because if you get it on your fingers, they'll stick together. And as a kid, I'm thinking, and they'll never come apart. So you'll be preaching like this. And then it said, and maybe this was a new warning, because maybe some kid said, ah, fingers stuck together, no big deal. It said, don't put it in your eyes, because your eyes will stick together, your eyelids. And I'm thinking, oh, well. But, you know, the point is this. Here's what maturity looks like in the church of Jesus Christ. It looks like people that are super glued together, or maybe, I like the metaphor, welded together, whose hearts are strengthened so that they can be the force of Jesus Christ as together in community. They're welded together in love. And I'm here to tell you that's stronger than super good, stronger than welding. It's the force that's going to bring Jesus Christ to this world. It's going to change the world. It's a community of people who are welded together in their faith, in their love. Well, here's the second feature of welding, or excuse me, of... (laughs) Now I'm into welding. Here's the second feature of maturity. The first feature is that we're in community. It's done together. You're mature when you're in community. The second one is this. You demonstrate maturity by confidence. Community and confidence. And here's how Paul develops it. And look at the text. And and I, I worked hard. I'm pretty sure that this is the way it flows. He starts off with that their hearts may be encouraged or strengthened, being knit or welded together in love. And then this could, you can almost put the word that again. Here's another purpose. In order that they may reach, and the word reach actually isn't in the original text, but it's, it's a word that says you can go after and attain this, the riches. And the riches there aren't so that you can attain financial stability. I don't know if you've looked at the stock market in the last week, and my advice in both services is don't look at it next week. Unless that's your job, because I noticed that there are some financial guys that you got to look at it. If you got to look at it, you got to look at it. If you don't have to look at it, don't look at it. Let them look at it. That's what they're paid for. You know what? The riches are not material possessions. The riches are something that go far greater than that. It's the riches of, and here's what the riches are, of not just assurance. The English Standard does a nice job by putting the word full in front of that. Full assurance. Complete assurance. The sense of confidence. Which then makes me ask this question, okay, so full assurance of what? So a feature of maturity is I'm confident. I've got full assurance. I'm standing up here confident. Confident in what? Well, Paul goes on, fortunately. Confident or full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. And don't you like that? Here's what you're supposed to be confident. You're confident in a mystery. (laughs) There's almost a a disconnect there, confident mystery. Confident would be it's not a mystery. I understand it fully. The confidence, and I think the two words that he uses there, is that you may have full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Understanding and knowledge, and those are similar terms. But the word knowledge in the original text is actually an embellished form of the word knowledge. It's like knowledge, knowledge, or the word true is a good word to put in front of it. True knowledge. I think it has the nuance of experiential knowledge. I think what Paul's trying to do is say, <clears throat> here's what's going to give you confidence and assurance, is when your mind knows 
and your experience experiences. When you know it and you've lived it. And the more you know and the more you live and you put those two together, you're going to be assured and confident. And the object of your knowing and living is going to be this. God's mystery. Wow. So you're assured of this mystery. And then the question is, so what's the mystery? And Paul gives it to us, and he'd already given it to us before. It's none other than Jesus Christ. That here is what maturity should look like in the life of a believer, in the life of one that's committed to Christ. There ought to be a community where we're bonded, we're welded together in love, but there ought to also be a community of people who have an assurance, and it's a full assurance, it's a true assurance, and it comes from we know Jesus Christ, and we have experienced Jesus Christ. We have experienced the fullness of what we know about him. And therefore, we stand, and we don't stand in our own strength, and the word isn't cocky, the word isn't arrogant, the word is assured. The word is, come what may. The word is to the Carmichaels to watch them as they've navigated the storms of the valley of the shadow of death and the Archambos just a, a week or so ago. And who knows who's next? And as we go through the tough times and the good times of life, that we are assured that Jesus Christ really is the center of it all. He's really the center of it all. He's really the center of it all. <clears throat> and then this Christ, it says in verse 3, and I, this again is vintage Pauline. Let me tell you this about Christ. In him are hidden... And you could say, hidden? Well, is that so I can't find it? And hidden, and the word hidden and mystery kind of go together. You know, a mystery has something that's hidden. The point from Paul's perspective, and by the way, he uses these words because there were mystery religions in the first century that actually were called mystery religions. And they said, we've got a handle on truth, and nobody else does. And we're in our little corner, in our little box, and we know truth, and you don't. Ha ha. And here's what Paul says. He wants a community, and, and he uses the word mystery, a community that have uncovered the reality of what was is unknown to unbelievers, was not well understood in the Old Testament. It's the unveiling, I even like that term, the unveiling of what had been hidden, and it stands in the person of Jesus Christ. The one You look at that cross, and there's a mystery to the cross. The mystery is... To those that perish, it's foolishness. To those of us that believe, it's the power of God. Let me tell you, that's a mystery. Let me tell you, for the world, there's something hidden about that, that Christ is all in all. And the hiddenness isn't you can't find it. The hiddenness is once the veil is off, you see what was under the veil, and that is the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. And in whom are hidden all the treasures, and he goes back to that, that, that wealth metaphor, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All that you need is found in Christ and maturity is a group of people connected together in community that are bonded and welded together in love and are growing in their appreciation, their knowledge of Christ, their experience of Christ, and therefore they stand assured and confident. Well, I tried to think of an illustration of that. And, you know, when you preach on occasion, you're always looking for an illustration. And I found an illustration that I said is going to fit somewhere. I'm going to make it fit somewhere. And that's not the best way to do illustrations, but here it is. Last spring, this past spring in our backyard, lo and behold, that just fits the mystery motif, you know. We found, I found, I'm taking total credit for it. It wasn't my wife, it was me. I found a hawk in our backyard, a hawk. And we live in Carmel, suburban United States, Indianapolis. A hawk! I can tell you're impressed. I was impressed. I've always liked big birds, you know, birds of prey. There's something about them that I like. This guy was a legitimate hawk. I was convinced 
that he was probably a hawk that had come from Egypt and had migrated over and was one of the only of its species ever seen in the United States in our backyard, by the way. And then Kathy, she decides to go to the Internet, which is the source of all truth, and look up hawks and finds out that this hawk is really like a red-tailed hawk and there's a bunch of them in Indiana. I said, I don't care. Doesn't matter. He's my hawk. He's in the backyard. And then we're watching. I'm watching this hawk because she's actually kind of mocking me for watching and being enamored with this hawk. It's like, I just think we had these little robin, I mean, wimpy robins, little blue jays, and then this hawk just dominates those. Anyway, we found that there were two hawks back there. And I'm thinking, not a biologist, not a hawkologist, two hawks. And then we found, and this was really cool, that these hawks decide to build a nest, and they don't do robin nest building. You know, robins take these piddly little pansy things and make a little nest out of, out of I don't even know what they make it out of. These guys pick sticks. I mean, they go down, they're big sticks. And they take them up there, and they made this really cool, strong hawk nest. I'm thinking, two hawks in a nest, the math, I mean, you do the math. You don't have to be a phenomenal genius to realize that a couple weeks ago, and I'm checking this hawk's nest out all the time, and I see up here this gangly-looking kind of, you know, downy, not very sophisticated thing that's trying to flop wings, and I'm realizing two hawks in a nest equal third hawk. There it is. It was hatched or born or however hawks come into the world. I don't think pelicans, or not pelicans, storks. I don't think storks bring hawks. There he was. And then, then just last week, I'm looking out my backyard, and the hawk is on, we've got this swing in our backyard, and the hawk is on the crossbar of the swing, and I'm really pumped. Like, this hawk is calling our place home. This is it. I said in the second service, Nate was here, I said, Nate has stubby, I got now hawkeye. <laughs> and I'm putting hawkeye up against stubby any day of the week. The only problem is he can keep stubby, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to convince the hawk to stay. But it was the little baby hawk, and the real way I realized that is he's standing on the top, and it's like, man, that hawk's about to fall off of there. And I'm thinking, what happens if a hawk falls off? Does he? And then he, then he flies to a, a branch, and it's like this gangly sort of flying, and he kind of, you know, barely makes it up there. And I'm thinking, man, I hope he can figure out how to get back up in the nest if that's where he's supposed to go. And then last week, and my wife finally starts to get into this a little bit, and she saw where the parent hawk flies. I don't know if you've ever seen a hawk, but, I mean, these guys are just, they're powerful, they're sleek, they're smooth. We saw them one time just go, whoosh, I mean, the adult hawk, by our window. And it's like, I feel sorry for that mouse. He doesn't have, or whatever it was. And there, there's something just so coordinated, so assured, so confident in this hawk. And this baby hawk is just kind of like, you got a ways to go, baby hawk, before you get there. This last week, my wife noticed that this gangly baby hawk is watching parent hawk fly from one branch to another, and then the, the baby hawk goes. And my sense is that probably what's going to happen, not that I'm a hawk expert, is that that baby hawk's going to watch mom and dad hawk and is going to figure it out, and he's going to get more coordinated, he's going to get more assured, he's going to get more confident, and he's going to start going after his own mice rather than squawking. We hear him squawking there in the backyard, and I don't know what he's asking for, but it's probably a mouse or something, and his confidence is going to grow. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> I just had to bring in, I, this is my version of our hawk, <clears throat> which is really an eagle. But if you saw my hawk, 
I mean, Hawkeye looks sort of like, probably doesn't look like that eagle at all, but in my mind he does. <clears throat> and the point is this. You remember Isaiah 40? Where Jesus talks, or not Jesus, where God, Yahweh, talks to his people. And Isaiah 40 is a fascinating passage because it's in the context of suffering and struggling in Israel. And they're about to go through the worst time that Israel had ever gone through. And chapter 40 starts with, comfort ye my people. And then there's a statement of the strength of Yahweh. That like, the, the nations are like drops in the bucket. They're nothing before me. And the last verse in that phenomenal chapter is this. They that wait upon the Lord, which is a statement of maturity. It's not a statement of apathy. It's a statement of activity and maturity. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Their hearts will be strengthened and they'll mount up with wings. And I've always loved this like eagles, like hawks, <laughs> ah, like eagles. And, and there will be a sense of confident assurance, not in themselves, but in their God. And here's what maturity should look like to the church of Jesus Christ. It ought to look like a group of people that are welded together in love. It ought to also look like a group of people who have studied their Savior, Jesus Christ. They know him well. They've experienced him well. And they have confidence, not arrogance, not cockiness. They have confidence that says, come hell or high water. Jesus Christ is everything. He's everything. I tell you what, we need a church of people bonded together. And we need a church of people with confidence like eagles and like hawks that stand assured in a world where nothing is sure. Where the one thing sure in this world, you have no idea what the next day holds. And the church needs to be a mature group of people that say, we know, God knows. It's about him. Let me give you two quick applications and then we're going to fly through the third point. Here's my question for us today. Is your maturity marked by being strengthened as you're being knit together in love? Is the welding process still going on in your life where you're connecting in love? Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Like in marriage, I wish I had a lot of time to embellish and work on this. They'll know we're Christians by our love. It would seem like they would know Christians who are married by their love for one another as they're welded and bonded together in love. You know what? We have a church of people, and I know because I do some counseling myself and I've watched... Others do some counseling where we struggle even in that most fundamental. And you say even in that most because if you've had marital struggles, it's tough. Here's what your goal ought to be. You've got to go out of here and say that I'm called by Jesus Christ to make my marriage a welded marriage. <laughs> and we're going to weld it together in love. Yeah, we've got a ton of problems. We've got a lot of problems. But Christ can. You remember that? Jesus can. Yeah, I bet he can. We're family, siblings, singles, whatever. We find ourselves bonded together. The church, we've worked hard, and we have not worked perfectly, but we've worked hard at making this big church have the opportunity to get welded together in smallness. It's hard to weld 2,400 people together. There's too many seams. And some don't, it just, it's, and here's what we try to do. We've gotten small groups. We've got adult Bible fellowships. We have ministry opportunities in a number of different areas. And if you haven't gotten involved in those, you need to. That's what maturity looks like. It's people Welded together in love. And then I ask this question. What are your plans to become assured, to have a sense of confidence? Not to say when somebody knocks on your door and somehow the topic of Christianity comes up and you say, well, I've got to go talk to the pastor. And by the way, I like those kind of conversations when people say, hey, you know, could you talk to this person? You know what I really like is when somebody says, I'm talking to that person. Could you give me a little help? <laughs> 
Because I want to be the one who knows my Savior intellectually. And by the way, that's not a small issue. I think knowledge talks about your head. You ought to know Christ better. You ought to study him more. And then it's also lived out in life. I've lived with him and I know him and I have an assurance that I can talk to my neighbor. I can talk to whoever it is that I need to talk to, that they're going to say, you know what, you've gone through some crazy stuff in life, but you stand confident. Why is that? And the answer is because Jesus is all in all. Maturity takes work. So you sure you want to be mature? Maybe it's easier not to. No, it is. Point number three. Last. And I've kind of worked off that F motif. There's a foolishness of immaturity. Look at verse 4. Paul said, I say this in order that no one may delude you. That word delude is a good English word. It's kind of like delude. I'm going to fool you. I'm going to trick you. No may delude you with fantasy. It's with plausible arguments. Which are all over the place and apart from one who is mature, who's welded together in community, who is studying and loving and living the reality of Christ in me, the hope of glory. You're going to get deluded. You're going to get fooled. Let me give you a couple quick. Paul had a bunch of them. Matter of fact, the reason he wrote the book to, uh, to, to the Colossians is probably because he understood there were people coming in that were trying to trick them so that they didn't believe this early, sort of immature, maturing church didn't believe that Christ was all in all. Let me tell you some of the tricks that are going to come to us and already are coming. In our fine Indianapolis Star newspaper, <clears throat> June 24th, 2008, that's like not that long ago. A report is given, and I know a lot of you saw this because somebody gave me this newspaper and I got links all over the place. It's a report about a study, a survey that was done, and surveys are always accurate, and it was done by Pew Research Center. It had a plus or minus 0.6 percentage point for overall findings. I have no idea what that means, but I assume it means it's supposed to be pretty accurate. They surveyed 35,000 people. They came to this conclusion that of the numbers surveyed, 76% in Indiana absolutely believed in God. Now, I think somewhere else they said 90% believed in God, but 76% believed absolutely there's a God. You agree with that or not? In every service I said that, and people weren't sure whether to agree or not. (laughs) I agree with that! There's absolutely a God! Doesn't say a whole lot, but at least I can agree with that. Because some of you read this and you know that it, that it doesn't give this best results. Here's the, the statement that really jumped out at most of us that read it. Is that of the 35,000 polled, the number who believes that many religions can lead to eternal life. In other words, I believe absolutely in a God, but there's a lot of ways to get to God, whoever God is. 73% of the Hoosiers believe there's many ways to God. Now, do you believe there's many ways to God? (laughs) Thank you. A little better response on that. And you know what? That's not just an exclusive statement like, I want to be right and everybody else is wrong. It's not that mystery religion motif. It's what Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That used to be a really positive statement. I remember as a kid when we would say that, hey, there's hope. Jesus is the way. Now it's a negative statement that says, you're saying Jesus is it. There's no other options. And there's something that has some level of feasibility 
to that, well, maybe I am just being bigoted. Maybe I am just being kind of this exclusive, stuck-in-the-corner type person. Or maybe there is a truth that is in contrast to an error, and the truth is Jesus. Here's good news, world. Jesus can offer eternal life by trusting in him. That's great news. And then it gets spun into, you think you know everything and nobody else knows anything. And then I'm thinking, well, am I really that bigoted? <laughs> I'll tell you what, it'll come in. And, and one of the interesting things about the studies, it just doesn't, those kind of things don't just happen out there somewhere. It happens in the church. It happens in College Park Church. You know, I'll tell you what, if we don't mature, here's what's going to happen. We're going to be deluded with plausible arguments that will draw us away from the centrality of Jesus Christ, that he's our all in all, no matter what happens, he's all that matters. You know, there's several other illustrations that I'm out of time. The whole question of morality. Man, do you think our society is trying to feed us a delusion that has some level of plausibility about what morality looks like? If you don't think, and if you don't think the church is buying into it, then I would invite you to our counseling center, which is only a small representative. By the way, I am thrilled for the people that come to College Park and say, I need some help, please help us. Keep coming. It's because there are a lot of things out there that are going to lose. I had, I had breakfast with a guy in Carmel, where I live and where he lived, and we met at Starbucks. I don't even know how many Starbucks there are in Carmel. Probably a bunch. We met in one. I don't do Starbucks because I don't do coffee, which is kind of a bummer because I look like this wimp. I usually get, like, water... You know, you go to Starbucks because you give me a water. And they're like, what is that? You don't belong here. Or I'll get an iced tea. And it's like, you don't go to Starbucks to get iced tea. And I got this lemonade. And I was even wimpier. You know, I'm feeling like the robin and not the hawk. And I want to tell them, put it in one of those really cool looking cups instead of a little plastic wimpy thing, you know. And so we're sitting outside and we're watching the caramel wake up. And we're, we've been talking about this before. And we realize here's one of the big delusions that comes to us on the north side of Indianapolis, and that is that money and success are the most important things in life. And we'll say, no, no, we don't believe that. We don't believe that. And I'm here to tell you, that's what we're being sold, and many of us are buying into it. That says, if I have it, if I'm healthy, and if I'm wealthy, life is okay. Yeah, I want to add Jesus on, because maybe he'll keep me healthy and wealthy. We're deluded. It's not hard to be deluded. Well, church... Here's our challenge. Our challenge is to strive for maturity. Paul said it's worth agonizing over. And we need to do it together in community. And we need to do it in a way that says, I want to know Jesus better and I want him to infiltrate every part of my life so it's all his. And I need to stand firm in that community bucking the tides of the world that are going to try to delude me with all these illusions. And I tell you what, a great exercise for the church to do in helping with that is coming to the Lord's Supper. It's a great conclusion to this sermon. You know, this is the meal of the mature. (laughs) There's a mystery to that meal. Me and my wife is a school teacher and she's been home over the summer and she's been cooking some really good stuff, which may not be all that good for me long term, but it's been fun to eat, and yet there's no meal that tastes any better than this meal to your heart. But that's different, isn't it? I mean, there's some mystery to it. 
The mystery is we all drink it together, so it strengthens all of us together, and we're strengthened by this cup and by that bread. And not only that, but it gives us a sense of the mystery of Jesus Christ. There's a mystery in that blood. There's a mystery in that cross. And the mystery isn't something we can't know anything about, because if you know Jesus Christ, the veil has been off, and you know that the mystery is that this crazy little cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ takes care of the sins of the world. That's And we get to partake of it together. I can't wait. I'd like to ask the men to come forward. We're going to distribute the elements. And I'd ask you to hold them so that we together, the community of faith, can be welded together as we partake. This is one of those welding exercises. We together are knit together in love, the love of Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, this isn't for you Except in one sense it is, I invite you to Jesus. I'd love you, even now in the quietness of this moment, to ask Jesus to be your Savior. And for those of us that are His, let's glory in the mystery that is Jesus Christ, our all in all.